Welcome to iPad Pros, the show all about using your iPad to be productive and get work done. I'm Tim Chen, host of the show. This episode of iPad Pros is sponsored by Spark. Learn more at sparkmailapp.com. Unlike the ScanSnap, it has a touch screen built into it, and then you can actually create your own shortcuts in the scanner, like in the scanner software on the scanner itself to do, you know, a series of one-sided, one-page PDFs or a series of, you know, two-sided but one-page PDFs, and it will properly separate those out in, into the different files. But the, the killer thing for me is that it is wireless, but I don't even use the wireless feature because it's got a USB port on the back. And you can set this to scan directly to the USB flash drive. So I'll scan a series of documents onto the flash drive and then pull that out, pop it into the iPad with an adapter, and I'm good to go. I can just open the files up. I can rename the files there, drag them where I want, to, want them to go, and that has been so much faster. Welcome to another episode of iPad Pros. I'm excited to share this lengthy discussion I had with Greg at the Shepherd's Crook Orphan Ministry. We had time to dive into a bunch of different topics, and I learned quite a bit from Greg. Greg shared a number of apps and accessories I've never heard of and can't wait to start incorporating them into my own workflows. Before we dive into the episode, I want to take a second to thank Spark by Riedel for sponsoring this episode. This is my main email app on my iPhone and iPad. And I'll be sharing more about Spark later on in this episode, as will Greg, who also uses Spark. You can learn more now by going to sparkmailapp.com. If you want to support the podcast, first off, go and download Spark by Riedel. You can also get episodes early at patreon.com slash iPadPros for as little as a dollar a month. Thank you to everyone who currently or has in the past supported the podcast there. Finally, if you haven't reviewed the podcast on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate just a few minutes of your time to open up the podcast app on your iPhone or iPad and leave a review. These reviews are extremely helpful in helping others discover this show. To those that have left a review, you have my sincere thanks and gratitude. It really does mean a lot. With that, here's my interview with Greg. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Oh, thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So can you first kind of introduce yourself and broadly how you use the iPad, kind of how long you've been using it for? Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Greg Godwin. Um, I work for a nonprofit called the Shepherd's Crook Orphan Ministry. My wife and I have nine kids, two cats, and two tree frogs. Half of those pets have been added to the house in the past year, so we've had kind of a busy pandemic. And I've been working at the same nonprofit for almost 13 years. It'll be 13 years next month. And, and so I, I have, over the years, come to use the iPad as my primary computer, not just for work, but also for you know personal uh, tasks and, and document management and everything that needs to happen there and for some of the volunteer stuff that I do for our church. Um, so I, I I do pretty much everything with it. There's just a, a handful of things that I still need a Mac for, but um, yeah, and, and so it, the iPad is just my primary computer and I've spent the last couple of years sort of toying with the physical setup to get it the way that I want it to be and I keep thinking that I've got it there, but there's always something to, to tweak and, and try to make a little bit more optimal, but um yeah, I'm, I'm very happy uh, using the iPad here. So why the iPad for you? What about it? Is it the, the flexibility to use it in tablet mode often? Or what about it uh, makes it work for you? I don't use it in tablet mode very often. Most of the time, um, I've got two iPads that I work from. I've got a 2018 12.9-inch iPad Pro, which is my primary computer. And then I also have a 7th generation iPad that I use as sort of a, uh, in place of a, what would be like a second monitor. Um and so I use that for like reference, for looking at my calendar, for looking at my task list during the day. And just if I'm doing any sort of research or looking things up, I'll, I'll often pull things up on the 
on that iPad. Um, and then I use them at my desk. They're in stands um, up off the desk. I've got an external keyboard and mouse that I use with them. That's the primary use for them. Um, I do use them in tablet mode occasionally. Um, but one of the things that attracted me to the iPad initially, well, there were a couple of things. One was the the extreme portability. I always liked smaller laptops. I was a big fan of the 11-inch MacBook Air um, when that was out. Um, so I, I really liked the the portability, the lightness. It, it really can't be beat. You know, for our kids, five of our nine kids are adopted and have special needs. And so we are no strangers to doctor's appointments and therapy sessions and specialists and everything. And um, until fairly recently, it's not even the case now, but not every doctor's office has Wi-Fi that you can use. So having a cellular option um, was really attractive to me for that. And then just from a, a usability standpoint, I really enjoy kind of solving puzzles and putting pieces together and, and trying to figure things out. So where some people in the earlier years of the iPad saw the limitations of iOS sort of limiting and hampering in what they wanted to do, I kind of saw it as a challenge to try to figure out, okay, I know there's got to be a way to get this done. So how do I do this? What can I chain together to get this done? And I found most of the time, you know, there has been a way to get everything done, at least to a, an acceptable degree on the iPad. Um, and nowadays it's, it's just about everything. There are only a handful of things that it's, it's really challenging to do. But yeah, I, I've enjoyed that process of just kind of toying with things and figuring stuff out. Speaking a bit about having two iPads and how you use them because that's something I haven't heard from a lot of people. A lot of people have what they call the multi-pad lifestyle. And that means two iPads set up exactly the same or one set up just for one purpose that you use in one room, not for the other room. But something I used to do at my last job was have two iPads and one, as you said, was like a reference monitor. And I had this little keyboard that I could hot swap between the two. So I could just like be typing between the two. How do you manage input? Do you have like a keyboard that swaps between them? Do you have two sets of mice to use for input or how does that all work? No, I use a, a Keychron K2 uh, Bluetooth mechanical keyboard so I can, it pairs up to three devices so I, I can toggle back and forth between the iPads pretty quickly uh, with that. And then I've, the mouse that I use is the Logitech MX Master 3. So there's a that will also pair with three devices. So I can flip it over, hit a button on the bottom, and be up and running on the other iPad pretty quickly. But honestly, so I can do that when I need to, but honestly, yeah. most of the time, because it's within arm's reach, I'll just reach up and tap the screen. And it's in that way, it's preferable to me to when I used to use a secondary monitor on the Mac because I've got a fully functioning computer right there that I can reach up and touch and manipulate and I can move stuff around the screen when I need to and I don't have to go through that dance of, you know, switching my keyboard over there every single time that I want right. to type on there. Sometimes I do, but I, I often don't do it that way. Yeah. Yeah, back in the day, I would use the Logi-based Logi charging stands and have them like identical iPads on those charging stands. There's just such a clean setup. And uh, you've yeah. lost that a little bit now with the current generation, but we have new advantages uh, such as the Magic Keyboard and all that. Right, right. Yeah, I don't really worry about charging them during the day too much because the battery, I basically charge them overnight and then just run them during the day. And yeah, I can't remember the last time that I ran out of battery in the course of a single day. That's really great because I sometimes have issues because if it's in a bright room, I like to have the brightness cranked max and that really does mm. hit the battery pretty hard. Yeah, that will, that will for sure. But yeah, I, I tend to keep the brightness down just a little bit. Um, so I, I, and working inside from home, I don't usually work in, you know, direct sunlight or anything like that. So that's, 
that's typically not much of an issue for battery drain for me. What kind of stuff are you referencing? Are you like doing input on one like spreadsheet while referencing a different spreadsheet for different data points? Or what are you using the, the reference screen for? Yeah, I will sometimes pull up a second spreadsheet on the, the smaller iPad and look at that. Sometimes I'll pull up information from like our bank account online. If I'm doing some bookkeeping entry, I'll need to have that referenced over there. And I've already got you know, sometimes I've already got two windows open on the big iPad, so I need a, a you know a third space, and slide over just doesn't quite work for that. And then other times, like I said, I'll, I'll often just have my my task list open for the day so that I can see that as I'm going through, and then I can see what I'm supposed to be doing as I'm getting work done on the the bigger iPad because I prefer to work on the bigger screen. I find that it's just easier to manage multiple windows and apps and everything going back and forth, and you know it's a good way to keep my calendar up there. Um, sometimes I'll pop messages open on there if somebody is messaging back and forth, especially if it's something that I don't really need to respond to, but I can I can just tell I can follow conversations as they're coming in. So I'll sometimes do that. But um, yeah, and, and you know, I like you mentioned, some people have iPads for very specific reasons, like they have a reading iPad and a work iPad, and I I don't do it that way. I don't have them set up exactly the same, but I've got many of the same apps on there, um, even down to some of the audio and video editing apps that I use. I've got them on both, even though I tend to use them only on the big iPad. Yeah. I like, I mean, I might as well have them on the smaller iPad in case I need them for something. And then that way I've got, I have access to pretty much everything I would need to have access to on both iPads because Mm -hmm. of iCloud drive and other cloud services that just do such a good job of syncing things. It just makes sense to have it there. Even though I use them for different purposes, I can, I can just pick up whichever one I need to at a time and, and be able to use that. Right. Yeah. So can you speak a little bit about the nonprofit you work at and the kind of work you're able to accomplish there? Sure. Uh, like I said, the, work, the nonprofit that I work for is called the Shepherd's Crook Orphan Ministry. Um, it's been around for a little over 20 years. My in-laws founded it um, in the late 90s. We incorporated in 2001. Our primary work is to work with adoption agencies to advocate for what are called waiting children. These are kids who are difficult to place with adoptive families for whatever reason, whether it's a a diagnosed medical need or special need of some sort or the child's age, because often a child over the age of about two or three is generally considered undesirable for adoption, so they're harder to place. Or kids who are in a sibling group who are um, who have been orphaned and need to be adopted because it's harder to place them all together than it is to place one child um, by himself. So we work with agencies to advocate for them. As of today, we've got over a thousand orphans on our website that we're actively trying to find families for and um, you know, doing what we can to, to get their stories out there in the hopes of connecting them with families and connecting those families with the agencies that can then proceed through the adoption process. So we we enjoy being able to see these kids come home and come along the families uh, during the adoption process there. So That's really cool. And is it uh, centralized around a certain location or is it across the 50 states or just kind of in your local area? Uh, no, we, we are um, based here in s- southwestern Ohio, uh, but we're not limited. Uh, we have families that have adopted through us that are all over the country. And um, really, it depends on the adoption agencies that we work with as to where families are located and, and you know where they can adopt. But we can. there's no reason we can't work with any family in the U.S. Families in other countries, that gets trickier because it depends on whether the agency that we're working with is licensed to work in that country. And typically, the answer is no. Right. Um, typically, the agencies we work with are only licensed here in the U.S. So that would be the limiting factor in that. But um, yeah, we the children on our site that we advocate for are from all over the world, from uh, Africa, South America, Asia, Europe, 
a lot of kids here in the U.S. and a lot of those kids here in the U.S. have been adopted before, and those adoptions are now being dissolved. And so they're looking for a second adoptive family uh, for those kids. Okay. So onto the work you do at the nonprofit, what are some of the core apps you use to get your your work done? And I guess you can kind of go through just briefly. We'll dive deeper in a little bit here. My role has me kind of filling whatever hole needs to be filled. Like I, I my, it's my responsibilities have kind of expanded over the years. So I've, I've collected more and more apps and things that I need to, to use to get my work done than I had when I started 13 years ago. But, um, you know, generally just to kind of run things down quickly for like communication based apps, I've got email and Spark and Preside. I use those two apps together. Obviously Slack and messages are big for that. For managing social media and, you know, uh, outreach stuff, I use MailChimp. Um, I think we want to talk about that a little bit later, but yeah. Uh, I use MailChimp mainly through Safari, not through the app. And then um, for social media management, most of that happens through Facebook's Business Suite app because um, that actually connects our Facebook and Instagram accounts into one app that I can use to manage to post things and to reply to people and, and um, manage it through there. And it's a decent iPad app or what's kind of the state of it? Eh, it's It's okay. I mean, it's a Facebook app. It's not as... Full. It doesn't have the ads or anything that the Facebook app has, but every once in a while they'll issue an update where that app will only work in portrait mode, and you're just gonna have to <laughs> wait around for a few weeks for them to get back around to fixing that so that it will actually rotate back to landscape mode and use it. So, does your um, uh, stand work in portrait? Is that something you're able to actually accommodate? Uh, it doesn't rotate, but I can pick up the iPad and rotate it and set it back down in the stand in portrait mode. So it, okay. it's it's a, when it, when that happens, it's only a minor annoyance, but um, I, I wish they would just keep that working in landscape mode. Um, so, but at least there is an app for that, and they still don't have an Instagram app, so I, I guess I can't complain too much about that. Yeah, and uh, and the Facebook properties are the core. Like Twitter is less of an important medium for your organization. Yeah, we have a Twitter account, but there really isn't much there. We get far more engagement on Facebook and tw- and uh, Instagram for what we do. Yeah, it seems so, like a much better fit. Uh, I'd yeah, say. I think so too. I keep posting to Twitter just so that there is an actual history there. And we, and we do get some comments on Twitter occasionally, but most of it is through Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. So for text type stuff, you use drafts and bear. Like what's the, d- how do you decide what goes where? Bear is basically my long-term note storage. So if I have a note that I know that I want to keep in reference later, I will put it in bear. And sometimes I'll start things right there in bear. It it has really good support for shortcuts. It has text expander support, which is a rarity these days. Because it's plain text, it's actually pretty easy to automate. I've got uh, a shortcut that runs whenever I, I do a new podcast that will actually build out the structure of the note in Bear. Um, they, for a while in Bear, have had uh, the ability to do wiki style links from one note to another and then a few months back, they introduced the ability to do wiki-style links to section headings within a single note. So what I do when I've got a longer note, whether, you know, like I said, for the podcast, for example, if I'm putting the show notes together, is I will um, put together a table of contents at the top. And then because it's all plain text, I know what the, the heading titles are going to be further down in the document as I'm as the shortcut runs. And so it'll just automatically put those at the beginning of the notes. So I've got a a table of contents at the top of the note and bear that's clickable so I can navigate down to the different sections of the note and do it that way. So I, I, um, I find that to be extremely helpful. Yeah. I used to be a, a Evernote user back in the day. I think I, Oh, I me too. I love like the, the crap out of that application. And then I don't know over the years, it just became less and less desirable. I know. And I, I've gone back to it a couple of times over the past couple of years thinking, you know, this is really good for certain things. And, 
And it's just, even with the, the new design that they came out with late last year, it just doesn't work as well. It's slower. It, it's Even though you, you can attach files to it, it, it has the, a really strange annotation engine on the iPad that doesn't work well with the, doesn't take advantage, I should say, of the Apple Pencil or anything like that. So it ends up just being a frustration. And it, it has... Uh, I don't know. The automation is has always been somewhat limited that you can do yeah. on device on the iPad, and it, it's still that way. And and Bear is just so much better at, at all of that that even though I can't collaborate with other people or anything like that in Bear, it's so much better for on device work. And most of the things that I do, I don't need to collaborate with other people in terms of working on the same notes. So um, I like the fact that Bear will export really nice looking PDFs. Of, docu- of notes that I need to share with other people, like meeting note summaries and things like that. And then um, I find that, that that works really well at this point. So Keep It is also another tool you use. And you can put text in there, but do you have a different purpose for that? Is that kind of like your file management kind of receipt holder or like document scanning storage place? Or what, what is that for? I use it for a very specific and kind of limited uh, set of documents. Basically, it's for things that I need to to reference quickly or often. So things like manuals for things, I'll, I'll put in Keep It because it'll, it'll OCR um, PDFs as you put them in there. One of the things that I do as well is that when adoption agencies send us information about children to list and to advocate for, they will, if they're allowed to um, by the the country's requirements, they'll send us, you know, a series of pictures of that child. So they'll send, you know, one picture, five pictures, you know, whatever. And there are times when I need to go back and access those original pictures, whether I'm putting together the show art for a podcast episode or the chapter artwork for a podcast episode or just advocating for the child via, you know, you know, whatever, whether it's Mailchimp or social media. And uh, sometimes tracking those down is a little tricky in email. Um, email search has been a little bit of a, a headache and I, I'll get to that a, a little later, I think. But yeah. but sometimes also with that, the agency will, you know, after they've sent us the initial batch of information a few months later, or sometimes even a year later, they'll send us more and we've got updated photos. And so it can take a little while to sort through those email threads and find the picture that I want. So I put together a shortcut where I will take all of the photos that were sent of a particular child, put them in a stack in Yoink, and then run the shortcut on that. And the shortcut um, asks for the child's name and for the um, ID number that we assign internally for the child. And then it'll go into Keep It into a particular folder where I save these photos, and it'll search for other files that are named with that same name and ID number. And it'll count them, and then it will assign the proper number after that. So if it finds four files that already have that already start with that name, it'll append the number five to the first one in the stack from Yoink and then just add them all to that file so that when I need to find them later on, I just go into keep it and I search for them and all of the, the photos are there. And I've got the whole stack of original photos. You know, I search for the ID number, it filters it down and I can see, okay, I've got six photos I need to choose from here. Let me just quickly, you know, tab through each, you know, tap on each one and see what they look like and which one I want to use at this point. So that's that's primarily what I use Keep It for, stuff like that. Okay. You mentioned email. Uh, so not only Spark, but also Preside, which I had not heard of Preside until you mentioned it in your notes prior to this interview. And I looked it up and it looks kind of like an interesting app. And I, I love that when you're setting up the app, it's got a little bit of snark. It still has mobile me and uh, Hotmail. <laughs> and it, it asks you... Uh, 
maybe you want to use iCloud, something like that. Yeah, I, li- I like it. Yeah, it's kind of a blast from the past. I had not heard of it until I discovered it last year. There was a blog post by somebody named Andrew Canyon. I, I hope I'm saying his last name correctly. I forget how he came across this, but he was sharing that he set up Preside to mirror some of the functionality of the Hey email service that just came out. Yeah. And so I thought, I've never heard of Preside. I thought I had tried all of the email right. apps because yeah. <laughs> what I had wanted for years for an email app was I really wanted one to to let me say, okay, take my entire backlog of emails, download it to my device, and let me search those files. Because for the nonprofit, I've got 13 years worth of emails at this point and almost 100,000 messages in my archive. And because we started before the days of G Suite and stuff like that, we just have you know regular IMAP email server. The problem is if I try to search for you know text that I know is in an email somewhere in Spark, it'll time out after a certain amount of time. It'll just say, I'm sorry, I can't find anything. It's a hard problem yeah. to solve. Yeah, it is. It is. I'm not blaming Spark. I, I, I think that that's an issue with the email server more than it is with the app. But I th- I suspect that this model of your email only resides in the cloud and you have to access it that way came from how limited storage space was on iOS devices in the early years. I mean, I mean, how long did we have 16 gigabyte iPhones that right. we couldn't store anything on? Yeah, the same problem exists in the local client. Uh, search on the local client is just not great, the Apple Mail app. Yeah, no, it's... It's really not, and it's really inconsistent too. It's not just that it won't find things; it's just it's not reliable. So, I had given up ever finding anything. I, I had tried, you know, Newton. I used Newton back when it was called Cloud Magic. Um, I tried, you know, Spark. I used Airmail for a while until I ran into some weird bugs with that that have never been resolved. And I tried. Uh, let me think. What else I've tried? Spike and uh, Blue Mail and all kinds of things. I used Dispatch for a long time until that until that app went away, but its search was mm-hmm. never great either. And so I looked up Preside and it, it claimed to allow you to do this. And I thought, okay, I've got to take a look at this. And sure enough, it does. You can tell it in the settings to download and index your entire archive of email huh. um, for your accounts. And it does it and it searches is phenomenal. It'll find, you know, I can search for text and, and it'll find an email from 10 years ago um, and text that was in the quoted body of the message, not just in the actual message from the, the person. So it's it's incredibly fast. And Out of curiosity, have you looked how big your Preside app is in your settings of just how much email <laughs> is on there? I think it's only a, you know, only like five or six gigabytes, but that's yeah. because I don't, I don't have it downloading all of the old attachments. I okay. think it downloads the attachments now as they come in, mm-hmm. um, but it hasn't downloaded the full 13 years worth of uh, email attachments, that would be kind of a lot, but but even that much text just to sort through and index, yeah. and and it takes a while for it to to run all of that in the background to download everything and index it properly. But man, once it does, it works really really well for that. And I I've tried using that app as my go to everyday email client, but it just doesn't quite work. It does some. It has some weird things that it does with email attachments when you're coming in and you're trying to work with them. And yeah. um, it has limited keyboard shortcuts. So it's just not quite ideal for that. You can't even email groups um, if you have groups set up in your contacts. It won't it won't see those for some reason. You can email individuals um, just fine, but you can't you know email to a, a group like you can in most other email apps. And there's no automation. There's no tie-in with shortcuts. Yeah. There's no URL scheme that I could find. There's there's nothing like that. So, but it's it your your tool for right. search. Like I I like it. Just a yep. purpose-built yeah. app for just search is what you exactly. used it for. Yeah. And the name is the name's perfect. Preside. It presides on your iPad. <laughs> 
Yeah, it does. It it really manages it well. Um, the it does not look particularly pretty when you open it up by default. It, it's kind of an austere, you know, classic yeah. old old school look to it. But it felt like I was going back uh, half a decade or so. <laughs> exactly. But I spent some time looking at it, and and you can actually tweak the colors and everything of the the setup to be pretty much anything you want. So I've got a nice, really dark gray and orange theme constructed in Preside. Um, so it, it's not as jarring to look at as it was when I, when I first opened the app. So, but it, it, it gets the job done for search. So I, I'm, I'm glad to have that tool in my toolbox here. Is it a one-time purchase or how's that one done? I think it's free to download. And then I think if you want to subscribe to the, the, the pro features, which I did because, you know, I, I'm figuring if I'm downloading that many messages, I want it to manage that well. I think it's like $25 a year. So it's really, okay. it's, I mean, for compared to the other email apps out there, it's kind of a lot, but it's really not much for what it does. Yeah. So Spark is your go-to live in and live out uh, email client. It's the one you go to for everything else. What about Spark that uh, made you go to that versus the other options out there? I think the biggest thing for me is that it's the most stable of all the email apps that I've tried. Uh, I used Airmail for a while, and I, I, I know some people have had trouble with Airmail telling you that it has sent a message when it really hasn't sent a message, which is an issue. I've had it go the other way, and it, I have this weird bug that with the account for the nonprofit, every once in a while I'll send a message and it will send two, three, four copies of the same message to the same recipients, and that is not great. And so the, the not last very time professional. No. <laughs> no. The last time that happened I was emailing our accountant and I, you know, I hit send on the air on the the email and airmail and it went and then a few seconds later I heard the whoosh sound again and it went off a third time before I could I could force quit the app. <laughs> and then so I I emailed him back and just said I'm sorry. My email email app occasionally sends multiple copies of the same email. Um I'm sorry you got caught up in that. And he wrote back and said, "Okay, that that makes sense. I thought you were just really insistent about this point." I thought, "No, that's that's not what I was trying to communicate." So <laughs> Um, I will occasionally pop back in and try airmail again, but it just, it doesn't work. And it searches, it doesn't search great uh, for me, for my needs. And it, yeah. and so Spark is just far more stable. And airmail will sometimes just randomly quit. If I'm in the middle of an email draft and I switch away, sometimes I'll come back and the email draft is just gone. And Spark does a much better job of managing all of that stuff and not crashing, not doing that. It has a functional URL scheme. I wish it would do a couple more things than it does, but it's there and it works and I can automate some things for that. It has some keyboard shortcuts, not as many as Airmail, but it has enough to, to make processing email pretty quick. Mm -hmm. It's the only app that I know of other than Apple's own mail app that actually supports multi-window on the iPad. So it's not something that I use often, but I use it often enough that I like I like knowing that I can pull up an email for reference as I'm, I'm writing a new email or searching for something. So that, that does come in handy. Yeah, that's a very useful thing. And before Apple Mail app did that, it's like, oh, this is just the Compose window is stuck here. I can't <laughs> look at the other one. And it's something you, you can end up doing quite a bit depending on the kind of emails you write. And Spark's the only one that I've found that does the HTML signatures which is something um i've needed in the past as a thing which not okay. many clients do that and that's one that it does uh pretty well yeah i didn't know that because I, I just use a plain text signature for everything yeah so i i'd never even attempted a, an html signature but it's good to i'm not surprised that it does that because they they have their bases pretty well covered with that app they've done a, a, a good solid job with that yeah my search for html5 uh signatures 
I must have tried every email app, and Spark was like the only one that did. It's like seriously, okay, this is like something pretty common, I would think, in the business world. But yeah, yeah, I think I think I get quite a lot of emails from people with you know HTML or, or embedded images and things like that. So yeah, do you end up using the Spark collaborative email at all? Is that something, or is it all you as far as dealing with that? No, no, I use it. Um, I use it some um, with my with my father in law in particular. Um, he also uses Spark most of the time, and so we we have collaborated there. And it's it's really handy to be able to do that to share an email like that and and to you know have a little discussion about okay how do we how do we respond to this? Do we respond to this? Do we think this is junk? Because as <laughs> most people do, we get lots of junk mail that sometimes seems legitimate at, at first glance. Um, so we we can have those discussions there with. Uh, because that doesn't necessitate a whole new email thread. It doesn't really require a text message back and forth, and so it's really it's really nice to be able to have that. So we we do make use of that. Yeah. So Trello is another app you mentioned in kind of your rundown um, mm-hmm. notes. Um, this is for project management, or what's what do you use this for? It is for project management. Um, I ended up using it for one specific thing. Uh, it's one of those apps that I had heard about for years and thought, that sounds really cool. I don't have a use case for it. There's no way that I could actually manage my tasks in you know a, a Kanban style like that. That's just not, it's not how my brain works and it's not how my job works. I need just a, you know, a checklist sort of app for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Isn't I it frustrating tried... when there's like cool apps that's like, I wish I'd have reason for that. O- Omni <laughs> plans that for me. It's like, I wish I'd have reason to use Omni plan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Agenda is that for me. I, I keep looking at it and thinking that looks great. It's got so many great features, but it just does not work with what I, with what I need to do. Right. So yeah. I, I've tried to shoehorn it in there, but it doesn't work. So I had Trello in the back of my mind for years, just uh, as an option here. And then um, one of the things that we do is uh, we've got a volunteer who is our main point of contact with the adoption agencies that we work with. And so one of the things we've got to to make sure we manage well is we want to make sure that the the children that we're advocating for and putting on our website and saying are available for adoption are actually available for adoption and that we've got the right contact information for the agencies because each of the the children listed on our site gets their own dedicated page and um people that you know submit an inquiry about that child, that, that email goes directly to the adoption agency. It goes to us and the agency. Um, so we need to make sure we've got all the correct contact information and all that. So twice a year, she goes through the agencies that we have and just emails them and asks them to review all of the information that we have. And for a while, we were trying to manage this in a shared spreadsheet. I think it started out as an Excel sheet and might have moved over to, to Google Sheets at some point. But a spreadsheet is is particularly ill-suited for tracking mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. So we had a column for like, hey, the last time I contacted this agency was this. And she would put notes there and it kind of sort of worked, but it never clicked. And so I, I took a look at it and said, okay, I, let's set up a Trello board here and let's just say, okay, here's the list of agencies to contact. And then we've got a column for contacted once, contacted twice. And then if she doesn't get a response after two tries, then I step in and contact them, and then we've got a column at the end for done for that particular period. And so I, we've got that, and and that has worked so well to manage that kind of thing because it's perfect for that kind of you know flowing through the steps of a project like that and tracking multiple pieces moving through the same, you know, assembly line. I guess for lack yeah. of a better term, but um, it works really well for her. It works really well for me to be able to pop in and see that. And then I've tied that, I think through Zapier, but it might have been through IFTTT. I, I can't remember which one. Um, so that any updates to any of the the lists or cards in that Trello board 
uh, get piped into a Slack channel. So I can see when she's working and what's going on without even having to open Trello because the, the Slack notifications will just pop up. And so if she puts a comment in there or has a question for me about something that she puts in the comment of the Trello card, I can go in. Like I know that that comment is there waiting for me. So I go in and do that. And that we've been using it that way for several years now. And it's, it's just fantastic for this kind of, this kind of work. And the individual kids will be listed under the agency card. Is that right? Or... Uh, no, I, I've actually, um, we started using Airtable um, last year to manage the, the children that we list from the agencies. And so I have set up on our website, um, private pages for the agencies to go in and be able to view an embedded Airtable view of just their kids on the site. Okay. So her email to them contains a link to that so that the agency goes to this to the to our site, logs in. Once they log in with their account, then they can see all their information there and let us know if anything needs to be updated. So she has sort of boilerplate text that she uses for that, mm-hmm. but but this allows us to track where the agencies are in the process and whether they're responding. If there's you know something unusual going on, we can track that there too. So that that's been working really well for us. That's awesome. Yeah, and Trello is one of those apps that feels like oh, this is so at home on the iPad. These big cards they drag yep. around. It's like. <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing like actually picking up the card and moving it to another section and dropping it that, yeah, it's just, I think it's a more natural, like you said, a more natural iPad app in some ways than it is even a Mac or a web app. Totally, yeah. So Airtable, I've tried to find a use for this. I really don't have one for my needs, but you've found a really good use of it. Like, how did you set this up? It's a very flexible kind of database system. And was this all done on the iPad, setting this up and configuring this? Yeah, I set this all up on the iPad. I, I don't think this would have been possible for me to do on the iPad before iPad OS 13 um, with the, the mm-hmm. new Safari that came in. Um, I had been using Airtable for years, um, for almost a decade now, to manage our kids' doctor's appointments and everything. Because when our kids were younger and we only had a couple, I could keep track of everything in my head. But it quickly got to the point, you know, we've been married 13 years now have nine kids and the way things kind of grew exponentially earlier on, I, I could not keep up with, with that in my head. And so I, I devised a, I, I set up an Airtable database for my, my wife and me to share where we could, you know, see the kids appointments history and, you know, chart their height and weight over time and have links to notes about the appointments and all that. So I knew about Airtable. What's this visually look like for those that are trying to visualize what this app looks like? Because you can set this up to look different. Like a database is very open-ended. Yeah. Like what's this visually look yeah. like? The If you go to the web interface, that's the one that I'm most familiar with. The The iPad and iPhone app is is strange. They've, they've done mm-hmm. some weird things with the way that that looks. It's sort of like a spreadsheet on, on the iPad. Like the the native iPad app looks kind of like a spreadsheet, but with gaps between the rows. So it's not like you can't see cells like you would see in a spreadsheet. Like if you open up a numbers file or an Excel file and you've got you know a grid of cells next to each other, it doesn't look like that on the iPad and iPhone app. But if you go into the web view... Um, online, that's the default view for Airtable. It's basically like the way that it was described to me is that you can think of a spreadsheet as a book. You can have chapters in a book, you can have different sheets for a spreadsheet, and you can you know, have a bunch of information there. But a, a database is more like a library. So you can have, you know, specific tables like, you know, within that, and you can connect more like larger bits of information together back and forth. So uh, in some ways, a database is like a super spreadsheet, if you will, um, in some ways. But it also allows you to create specific views and 
ways of viewing and accessing and even adding the the data in there. So like I said, if you go and open up you know a free Airtable account and log in online, the first view you're going to see is going to look very much like a very slim spreadsheet. Unlike Excel that gives you infinite cells seemingly in, in you know to the right and to the bottom. You know I think Airtable defaults to just like you know three or four columns and you know I don't know maybe. 20 or 50 rows, something like that. I don't, I don't remember yeah. what the d- default is there, but it, so it looks kind of like a spreadsheet, but you've got different kinds of fields that you can put in there. And so we had actually been managing the, the children that we advocate for in a shared Google sheet for a while. Um, and that was working pretty well until last summer, I discovered that we were getting some data corruption in the, the spreadsheet, which was not pleasant to find out. I found some, some cells that have been improperly copied and pasted over some other cells in there. So we lost, so some of the kids' names and ID numbers were incorrect. And then the the really strange thing was that some of the ID numbers, which should have been just a straight four-digit integer, ended up being bizarre decimals. So instead of, you know, 4035, it was 4034.9874394. It would just go on and on and on. I thought, what in the world is happening? Like, I can understand, you know, copying and pasting something incorrectly, but where is it getting this weird, you know, extended decimal that never should have been there? So at that point, I realized, I think we're stretching this too much. And I mean, honestly, I should have moved us to a database years prior because we got to the point where we were trying to manage the children in one spreadsheet, the agencies in another, and the families in another. And we really needed all of those to tie together. So I needed a way to tie three spreadsheets together, which is exactly the kind of thing that a, a database is designed for. So last year, we, we looked at this and I set up an, an Airtable database for us that within that database, I can track, you know, all of the children that we advocate for and the families and the agencies that we have and the podcast episodes. And I can track our volunteers and I can tie all of this together. So, you know, if there's a child who is on our website has also been featured on the podcast, I can just by opening up that child's record, I can access the podcast episode. I can access the agency that that listed that child with us. I can find all that information just from one single record in the Airtable database, which has been immensely helpful to have all of that, you know, instead of having it spread over several different spreadsheets and never sure if it's exactly saving things correctly. I mean, we are not even using, I think, I forget what the limit is in the Airtable database. And I don't want to go try to track that down now because if I'm, I'm afraid if I exit the app, I'm going to lose the audio and on <laughs> the chat or my recording. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I think you get like, you know, 50,000 records per database and so in our main database right now, I think we have just over 5,000 records. So we're not even coming close to the limit of what a database is meant to to handle data-wise. Right. And it, it's, it's been such a, a huge thing for us to, to be able to use that. Did you look in the FileMaker or was the notion of Airtable being a free service really appealing for that from that angle? Uh, we ended up not being able to use the free service on Airtable. We had to, to pay okay. for it because it, yeah. I think the free one gives you like 1200 records or something like it's a limited amount it's enough to try it out and see if it's see if it works work. yeah exactly yeah it's, it's a pretty generous free tier and you get all of the like you can use the api you can use the web automation and stuff in the free account so there's no limit on that it's just that the the paid accounts give you far more you know give you the ability to make a far larger database than the, the free account does um and i did look at filemaker but i I don't have much experience with the databases. You know, my experience prior to this was Bento way back in the day. Oh, yeah. Which I love, and I keep 
I kept hoping that something like that would come out again, but there there's nothing out there like no. that. Um, so I looked at FileMaker and I just thought that seemed it seemed like overkill and and you know more expensive than was probably worth it for us for our data needs. And the other option that I looked at was actually TapForms. Um, that's a an, an iOS and Mac database app. Yeah, I've, I've heard of that yeah, one. Yeah, and I, I tried using that and I couldn't ever quite get it to work properly uh, for me. And I don't know if I was setting something up um, incorrectly, but ultimately Airtable ended up being the better option for us because of things like being able to embed uh, specific views of our database on pages of our website and, and have that mm. kind of flexibility. I wouldn't have been able to do that with, with tap forms for sure. And yeah. probably I would have been able to do that with FileMaker, but I could never quite piece together like how, like whether I'd be running the file server somewhere and responsible for that. And I really didn't want that bit of overhead because I don't really know what I'm doing when it comes <laughs> to that. So I, I really wanted something that would be a little bit more accessible and flexible and Airtable definitely fits that bill for us. Do you use the shortcuts integration at all? Using that API? No, I don't. I, I actually use it for, strangely enough, just for a personal bit. For I've got a shortcut that'll run um, when that I run when uh, one of our kids has an upcoming doctor's appointment that'll add stuff to that. But I, I don't use any of the shortcuts for um, the database for the Shepherd's Crook. Um, I use a the way that it's set up is that when you have a paid account through Airtable, you have to pay for each user who has read and write access to the database. So you can add other people in there who have just read-only access, um, or you can, you know, share. Like I said, you can embed the the database view on a web page and, and see it there. The way that it's set up is that I'm the only one who can actually make any changes to the database. So I've set up a couple of forms through Airtable that will allow um, some of. We've got a couple of volunteers who work with us to process the kids as they are sent to us by the agencies and then get them ready to go up on the website and then actually post them on the website. And so when uh, one of our, our first volunteer in that bit, um, she gets the email, she enters all the information for the kids into a form that I've set up, creates, like, crops all the pictures and resizes them so that they're ready for the website. And then she inputs all that into, into the form um, in Airtable. And then that goes into a specific view on Airtable. Um, the main view that we work from, you can set up all kinds of conditions for Airtable. Uh, this is kind of getting deep in the, in the weeds here and I might get a little bit lost. But basically I set up a, a one field um, in the record for the kids that just says entry verified and it's a checkbox. And so the the master list that we all look at and work from, that's the the master record of all the kids that we that are on the site, that were on the site, that are in process to be adopted, that have been adopted, all of those have that box checked. They only show up in that particular view of the database if they're checked. So I've got a, a, a view uh, in the database called it's called my queue. So I go in there to see the list of kids that I need to process and those boxes are unchecked. So I go in and I just kind of take the data that she has put in. I verify a couple things about it and then I, I complete the entry and check the box and it goes into the main view. And then that way it's accessible to everybody else. I've thought about possibly automating some of that stuff and, and, and taking some of those steps out, but I really like having that extra layer or two of human eyes checking it to make sure that everything is all the way correct before we say, yes, this is ready to be posted on the website. Um, cause in, invariably with, you know, a thousand kids on the site and, you know, over almost 5,000 kids in the database, things will slip past one of us from time to time and having two or three of us working on the same data set, we're liable to catch. I mean, just earlier today, this, this volunteer emailed me and said, um, the last couple entries you put in there, 
um, you used ID numbers that were already used before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had to go back in and, and change those. And that yeah. wouldn't have been caught if it had been... I mean, yeah, it, that that's the kind of thing that might not be caught if we were automating that. Right. Um, we've had, you know, an agency send us information about a child that was already on our website and they'll use a different name for it because they're, they're often assigning, you know, aliases to these kids. And our, our volunteer who works with the photos will almost always say, I've seen that photo before. And she'll be able to go back and find. And sure enough, you know, that kid was listed with us nine months ago and we have that entry so we can just go back in and update that. And there's, there's no way to automate that kind of, of checks and balances. This episode of AdWords is sponsored by Spark by Riedel. Love your email again with the best personal email client that's revolutionary for teams. Email is something we all have and something many people struggle with. Spark, as you heard Greg speak about earlier, really is the best solution to take control of your inbox on iPad. To me, it is the app that perfectly balances pro user needs with a design approachable to any type of user. Spark intelligently prioritizes your email it bubbles important messages from real people to the top, helping you find the emails that truly matter. Something I love using our VIPs in Apple's Mail app, but Spark takes this idea and improves upon it greatly by showing you notifications for emails from those people that you actually know. With VIPs, you have to set each one individually, and many people run out of VIP slots. Spark's approach to notifications is exactly what I want from VIPs without the time and effort needed by the built-in app. Spark is littered full of smart features like this. Snooze email to handle them later when the time is just right. Send later lets you reply to an email late at night instead of that email getting buried in your recipient's mailbox. Instead can be scheduled for a certain time, ensuring they will see it or you don't look too eager to reply right away. Whatever the reason, it's great to have. Another killer feature is their email signatures. I still haven't found any other apps on iPadOS that can do HTML5 email signatures. Beyond that, you can set up multiple signatures and swipe between them depending on who you're corresponding with right there in your composition window. If you're on a team, you can collaborate on emails within Spark. This is something Greg mentioned just a few minutes ago. As a team, you can privately comment on an email, create emails together with a real-time composition editor, and use templates to speed up replies to frequently asked questions. These are just some of the many features that make Spark my email client of choice. It really is the best solution out there for iPad. Learn more at sparkmailapp.com and download the app today for free to see for yourself why Spark is so special. Once again, that's www.sparkmailapp.com. My thanks to Spark by Riedel for sponsoring this episode of iPad Pros. Learn more at sparkmailapp.com. So task management, uh, things is kind yeah. of your go-to app there. Why that over OmniFocus or the other ones out there? Uh, for me, most of that is because I have been using things for almost a decade at this point, And it was the first one that I first dedicated task manager that I tried. I used it without really understanding what getting things done was. I've never actually read the book all the way. Mm-hmm. I've, I think I've started it twice and have never actually finished it. <laughs> so most of my knowledge from that comes from a combination of the famous inbox zero talk that Merlin Mann did. Yeah. And then he did a years ago, I think it was back in 2012, did a, like a five part mini series on getting things done on the back to work podcast and just kind of laid out the, just the basic flow of 
capturing data, getting your stuff into a trusted system and working off of that. And, and so, you know, once, as I was processing all that and I was using things there, there was at one point, everything just clicked and I suddenly understood what the areas of responsibility were. I understood how to work with projects and the someday list and the today list and the inbox, like all of that just clicked. And so I've, I've been using that and, and kind of, in some ways, letting that app kind of shape the way that I work with tasks and, and manage things because no app will work, whether it's task management or email, no app works exactly the same way that everybody's brain processes everything. So to a certain extent, you've got to find what works mostly for you and then kind of adapt to that app, at least to a degree. So because I got into that and then with the release of things three especially a couple years ago that was just i mean everybody talks about the visual side of it but it's just it's never it's never given me any trouble it's, it's rock solid it's sync is incredibly fast it's stable it's always one of the first apps to to introduce new uh, features uh, when a, a new version of ipad os comes out or ios comes out they're at, at this point at least once they release things three they're they're one of the first apps to introduce that. So multi-window support, they've got great shortcut support, they have a URL scheme for getting to things. So I just haven't felt the need to change anything. That's not to say that I haven't kicked the tires on a couple of other apps because I have. I've tried OmniFocus and Todo and Todoist and I just keep coming back to things. It's the way that my brain processes things right now and because it works so well and is so solid and in, in some ways it's flagship feature over the past two years or so is the, the keyboard support for the for the iPad is just phenomenal. It, it you can navigate and control almost the entire app just from the keyboard, and that 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 makes it faster. Yeah, I've heard amazing things about that aspect in particular. Yeah, yeah. So I I find it to be to be good, and and it's a it's an app that scales up and down pretty well. I mean, OmniFocus does not scale down particularly well, and in some ways, Todoist doesn't scale up very well. It, it's a really good app, but. But I, my biggest frustration with Todoist is, one, the lack of actual shortcuts integration. It has some, um, but, you know, it, its concept of project templates is, is a little wonky. You've got to, you know, the best way to do it is really to export a CSV of the project template and then use that to import a new one. And it doesn't work with shortcuts. And things itself doesn't actually have a good project template um, feature for shortcuts or for its URL scheme. But there's a, a drafts action. Um, one of the things that I use drafts for is processing text of all different kinds. There's a, a an action in the, the drafts directory called things parser that will let you create a project using the task paper format, and then it'll run that and, and correctly do that. So you can, so I, I've got shortcuts that will run. I need to create a new project for something and have all of these tasks in that project. That action and drafts will create that project in the proper area of responsibility. It'll create all the, the tasks under it with the proper dates and notes, everything that I need for that exactly as I would want it to, to go. So having found that, like I said, I just don't see, you know, I'm not going to rock the boat that's actually working well. And But if things ever goes away, I will be in deep trouble because yeah. <laughs> everything is in there. So Right. And I feel the same about OmniFocus is what I started with and I'm very familiar yeah. with it. And yeah, whatever you start with kind of it's got a big advantage for, for being that. Yeah. And for the most part, for, for apps like that, if you outgrow it and go beyond what it's capable of, you'll know it and you'll know that yeah. it's time to, to look for something else. Yeah. So you mentioned shortcuts quite a bit there. What are the ones you use on a regular basis? What have you set up on your iPad? So one of the ones that I, I set up, going back to the whole like asking for updates from the agencies and everything, I have a, a shortcut set up that when it's my turn to, you know, if our 
if our volunteer has contacted an agency twice and hasn't gotten a response back, which happens because sometimes emails for whatever reason get flagged as spam and set off into a spam filter and people never see it. And because I've been around a little bit longer, my emails tend to get through. I'll reach out to the agency at that point. So I've got a shortcut that, that I run that will ask me to select the agency from, from a list. I'll select that. It'll search my contacts. I've got a group in contacts for all of the active agencies that we have. And so I'll, I'll enter all of the um, contact information for each of the people that we know at that agency and tag them with the, the active agency tag and, and, and the, actually use card hop for that uh, to manage contacts because you can't manage groups on the, the built-in contacts app on, on iOS. So the shortcut will go in, search through that group for anybody that works at that agency and it will ask me for the, the dates that we've previously tried to contact them. And it will pull up an email um, in Spark addressed to all the people at that agency with the boilerplate text in there, including the dates that, I've, you know, that, we, that we've already tried to reach out for them with the links that they need to get to the website. And then there's a spot for me to, to add a little bit more. So if I know that there's been some recent turnover at the agency or something like that, I can add that in there and I can you know, send that off. But it, it, the, the nuts and bolts of the email, the important pieces, I don't have to look up each time. Yeah, I don't have to, that's super cool. I don't have to do any of that. Yeah, so that's, that's one that I use quite a bit. I run one similarly for monthly updates for, for the bookkeeping work that I do. One of the things we do for all in-process families, we send them an update every month about what donations have come in for their kid's account, what payments have gone out from their child's account and the current balance. And so I actually track those in an Airtable database as well. So I I update that database, the tables for each of those kids each month. And then I have those, I have, pub, I have links to those, but they're password protected. So I have a shortcut that goes in. I keep all that information in, in data jar. And so I've got a shortcut that will go in and say, okay, I'm, I'm sending all of the information for these kids this month. It'll ask me for the, you know, to choose the child. And it'll, actually it'll, it'll go into data, data jar, pull up each kid one at a time, ask me for the current final balance of the account and then it'll construct uh, an email um, with all of the all of the relevant information for that child's account, the link to their to their full history in Airtable, the password for it, and their current balance. And it'll format that email and get it ready to send. So again, I don't have to go look that stuff up. I don't have to. I used to have to type all of the donation information and, and the transaction information into the email. That's how I did it for years when I first started, and that got me into Text Expander and everything. But this is way easier even than Text Expander for that because it's all just done in one in one shot there. I've got one for personal use for our kids for managing prescriptions and stuff that if I need to refill a prescription or request, um, uh, if I need to request a refill or go pick up a refill, I've got shortcuts for those that again, I keep that information in data jar. It goes in, asks me which kids I need to to uh, do something with. I select the kids. It'll bring up the list of medications that they have. And then I can say, you know, I need to go pick up this, you know, this medication and this medication. When do you want to do that? I want to do it on Thursday this week. And it'll add that to things and it'll, it'll format the tasks, say pick up, you know, this medication for this child on Thursday and tag it with an errand and add it to things. So that's something that I, I use almost every single week. Yeah. So very cool. So with fundraising, you mentioned each kid has kind of their own account. How, like, how's that aspect? The nonprofit work is. Do you guys use a certain service for that? Is you know Mailchimp integrating with that, or what's the process for all that? Yeah, we have. We can accept donations either via check um, at our post office box or online. And then uh, for our bookkeeping software, we use a, a, an online service called Aplos. 
it's actually specifically designed for nonprofits and churches. For the first few years that I did the bookkeeping, we we used uh, QuickBooks nonprofit. And for a while, I had a netbook that I was running it on that I, I moved to using a virtual machine on my Mac to run that. But QuickBooks for Nonprofit was always a little challenging to work with because as I understood it, and it certainly seemed this way to me, it was basically the regular version of QuickBooks with just a thin layer of um, nonprofit vocabulary placed on top of it. So sometimes right. getting the right sometimes getting the right reports out was a little challenging. So I think we moved to Aplos. It's probably been six or seven years ago at this point that we moved to this web-based solution here. And and there were definitely times before iPad OS 13 and, and especially the um, ability to use a, an external mouse where working with it on the web was a little challenging on the iPad, but but it's it works really well for us. So that's where we track everything. So I run all of the reports there. And then again, I haven't figured out a way yet to automate this process or to see if there's a way to let people view their, you know, to create sort of a web view from this bookkeeping service that people could potentially log into. The the volume is low enough at this point that I can do that that manually at this point. Um, especially if because I go through it once a month and update that. Yeah. If I were doing it, you know, every quarter or, you know, six months or so, that would be a little bit more challenging. But doing it doing it regularly once a month, every just every few weeks, it really hasn't been been too onerous at all to do it that way. Okay. And in your notes to me, you mentioned scanning documents, digitizing documents. Yeah. Are you using a certain app for this? Do you have a physical scanner that you're using that interfaces with the web or what? what's that look like? Yeah. I, primarily at this point, I actually use a physical scanner. For a while, I hadn't. Um, I, I used a, an old Fujitsu ScanSnap back when I used a Mac full-time and that was yeah. great because I came across a, a blog post, I think it was by Brooks Duncan, that showed that you could create different profiles to save. Like, so, uh, you know, you want to scan a whole stack of one-sided, one-page PDFs. So you can just set up a shortcut for that and just run that. And there was a way to integrate that with Alfred on the Mac and get it to run all that just by typing a command into Alfred. And so that worked really well. Yeah, I love my ScanSnap. During my college days, I had one and used it quite a bit with my old MacBook uh, Pro. They're they're phenomenal. They they really are. Yeah. I wish iPadOS would interface with them. It's one thing they still don't really... You can't talk directly to a scanner, I don't think. I know. No, you, as far as I know, you can't. I... I picked up a, a little doxy scanner a couple years ago trying, because this was the, the one glaring hole in, in my workflow. Uh, the One of the biggest things that I, I, I was frustrated with when I moved to using the iPad all the time is that I, I couldn't use the ScanSnap. And, you know, you could buy the, the big iX500 or whatever it is for like $500 and, and work with that. But I thought, I don't really want that on my desk all the time because I, I do have physical paper that I need to scan on a, a somewhat regular basis, but it's not something that I do all day, every day. And so that just seemed like a bit of overkill for that. So I, for a while I was using Scanner Pro, which works really, really well, but scanning multiple page documents or two-sided documents gets a little, it, it takes time because you've got to flip the page over and position the camera and let the camera yep. take the picture. And sometimes the camera doesn't take the picture and you've got to turn the, you know, I found that if you turn it to manual and then turn it back to auto, it'll sometimes jog it back into working. And so that just became kind of onerous. So I kept my eyes open for something and came across a doxy scanner that's claimed to work with the iPad a couple of years ago. So I tried that and you've got to use the doxy app and it does that thing that some uh, wireless devices do where it creates its own little ad hoc uh, Wi-Fi yes. network and you've got to interface with that and connect yep. to that network and work. And it was supposed to 
let you connect it to your your home Wi-Fi and just access it over that. And that worked most of the time, but not all the time. And it was a slow, one-sided app. And I had to use their app to combine all the PDFs and everything. And it was just, it was not a great experience. And I, I had, again, like with email apps, I had kind of given up finding anything that worked. But a few months ago, I came across a scanner. I decided to look one more time and found one that has been working great. It's a brother scanner. It actually looks just like the the ScanSnap S1300. It's got that same form factor. Unlike the ScanSnap, it has a touch screen built into it. And then you can actually create your own shortcuts in the scanner, like in the scanner software on the scanner itself to do you know a series of one-sided, one-page PDFs or a series of you know, two-sided, but one-page PDFs, and it will properly separate those out in, into the different files. But the, the killer thing for me is that it is wireless, but I don't even use the wireless feature because it's got a USB port on the back. And you can set this to scan directly to the USB flash drive. So I'll scan a series of documents onto the flash drive and then pull that out, pop it into the iPad with an adapter, and I'm good to go. I can just open the files up. I can rename the files there, drag them where I want to want them to go. And that has been so much faster. And it 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 has a better scan quality than the the Doxy scanner by a long shot. It's it's very close to what the ScanSnap can do. What's that one run cost wise? Uh, the Brother scanner I think was about two forty or two fifty. So Not bad. It's in no, it's in that like that mid range ScanSnap scanner price range. Yeah. So and I'm trying to remember, do they make Thumb drives that like one end is USB C and the other end is A, and you can just plug in either one. Is that a thing yet? They do do that, and I, I had one for a while, and I don't actually know what happened to it. I don't know. Um, there was one that I had that I erased on my Mac as soon as I got it, and I, I killed the firmware that allowed it to work with the iPad. <laughs> so, because that would be a perfect product for that, right? Because that's probably USB A. Yeah thumb drive that is designed for that scanner, right? Yeah, that would be totally perfect for that. I'm a little wary of inserting um, and ejecting and pulling out flash drives that rely on those little plastic sliders to hold it in place when you're going back and forth. So I just have one of those little like tiny nub flash drives that I stick in the back of the scanner so it's not sticking far off the back and it's not going to get caught on something and snapped off in there. Yeah. Um, and then I just keep a little USB... A to USB-C adapter on my desk and I just pop it in there when I need to, to access files, you know, once or twice a week. Yeah. It'd be cool if you just plug a cable directly into the scanner and if there was like internal memory in the scanner, if that would be, yeah, a, that'd be a cool thing though as well. That would be really cool. I, I Or it'd be even better if it would just let me scan to the files app and I hook it up to yep. the iPad and just let me scan yeah, that, them in that, there yeah. and I do that. But, iPad OS 15, but I, right? I'll take this. This is this is way better than what I had. This is much closer to the, the whole ScanSnap workflow than, than I had than I've had since that point. So yeah. I, I'm well satisfied with this because scanning documents is part of my work, but it's it's not as big a part of my job as it was you know, 10 years ago because most people don't send you things in the mail anymore. Yeah, I'm remembering back to when I used, I used EvanThink Pro Office in college and they had a built-in scanner interface that was just brilliant. I loved it. And huh. it would be so cool if iOS developers, iPadOS developers could interface with scanners and build their own little interface into these kind of like um, like Devin think for iPad or uh, yeah, keep it. Yeah. That'd be great if they could have their own scanning uh, interface. Yeah, I agree. And I, I don't know that we're likely to get that because I think scanning documents is kind of a, a niche 
thing at this yes. point. I think that I think Apple has. I mean, they've created a pretty good uh, platform for wireless scanning or for you know photo scanning. So they they've got that built in. And they I do. Keep yeah. It, I think keep it and other apps tie into that. For they do. Yeah. And it works that, good is, for just one off things. So if you're doing like a whole book. Yep. Like. Yeah. Exactly. Or if you know you've got payroll reports that are sent to you, and you've got you know 15 pages of PDFs. You don't trust me. You don't want to to scan a 15 page document using the 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 camera on your phone or your iPad. It, no. it, it it's not it's doable, but it's not great. fast. Yeah, it's not fast, and and sometimes the photo quality is not is not good. It's hard to get good lighting on that. And Scanner Pro is done. Yeah, you might have shadows or something on it. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I actually bought a little LED lamp to clip on the back of my desk to shine light down on the the papers that as, as okay. I was scanning them in with Scanner Pro a while back. But the problem with that is that it'll wash out the text if you're not careful yeah. if you get it too close to that. Websites are important for nonprofits to kind of share their message, as you would imagine. Uh, mm-hmm. WordPress is the platform you guys chose for your uh, nonprofit. Mm-hmm. What's the WordPress scene look like these days on iPad? I know they have an app. I know their website works pretty well. well. What's the situation there? Yeah, I have the WordPress app installed, but I don't I don't use it for anything related to uh, the nonprofit. I use it a little bit for looking at, at stuff on, on my personal blogs, but not for the nonprofit. Um, when, I, when I built this website on WordPress, this was about five years ago. I did the whole thing, almost the whole thing on my Mac at that point, putting it all together and, and all that. And since that point, I, I've been over the past couple of years, as I've used the iPad 99% of the time for what I do, I found that the WordPress site in Safari works fine. It it really does. There, before the addition of true trackpad and pointer support last year, it was a little, it was impossible to work with one of the plugins that um, we had that allowed you to like drag and drop elements of the the web page around and, and position them where you wanted them. So I, I was stuck using the Mac for that or just ignoring that. But I've actually been trying to move away from that plugin, not because there's anything wrong with it, but just trying to simplify the structure of the site. So I've been I've been diving a little bit more into CSS and HTML and doing that. And if that's all you're working with, you can easily do that on the iPad. You can open up the editor and, and move those blocks around and, and the WordPress editor in Safari. It, it's I find that it's fine. Um, Every once in a while, you run into one of those weird issues that you do in any web app where scrolling doesn't seem to work properly in a field and you've got to move the the pointer to a different part of the page and try scrolling or sometimes reach up and tap the page and get it kind of jog the scrolling back into working properly. But aside from that, it it has really worked quite well. That's that's really good to hear. And as you're updating sites, you're working in the code itself or using the rich text view or... Uh, typically, uh, for a while I was using the rich text view, but over time I've been trying to do more and more in the direct code so that I can see what's going on. And yeah. I'm just curious about you know HTML and CSS, and I didn't really know how to do any of that five years ago when I started. So I've, I've kind of learned enough to get the website up and functional a few years ago, and I've just been kind of chipping away at pieces of it here and there as we've got, you know either problems that need to be addressed or just things that I think I would really like to be able to do this. How do I do that? And I'll search and find that. Um, and I have not been following best practices. I've been doing a lot of coding in the web browser, which yeah. is really dangerous and not great. So I, I've moved all of those um, important pages off into uh, text files on the iPad that I, I typically use Textastic to open and, and work with them there. So I'll make changes there, copy them out, paste in, replace the entire page of code on the the website and then, you know, refresh the page and make sure that it works. And if I have any changes to make, I'll make it in. I, 
I'm trying to train myself to, to work in the text file and make the changes there and then, you know, copy those over to the website and not the other way around. So, yeah. So I'd imagine you work with volunteers, as you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. What kind of management do you have to do? Is it just emailing back and forth with people? Uh, what, what's kind of the situation there? Yeah, it's primarily email. We do have Slack that we use for some things internally, but um, it, Slack is one of those things that it works really well for for me and for my um, my in laws. They're the the founders and directors of of the Shepherd's Crook, and so they, we do a lot of communicating back and forth over Slack, which helps because you know we've all got too much email going on. So having a separate channel that you can kind of filter some of those um, conversations into works really well. And some of our volunteers have taken well to Slack. Others haven't quite grasped it. And that's fine because I use it also for, like I was saying earlier with tying the tie into Trello, I use it for getting updates, just kind of seeing what's happening. And anytime that, that um, a photo was shared to social media advocating for one of these kids, I get a notification in, in our um, advocacy channel in Slack so that I can track that and just kind of keep pace with things that way. But a lot of it is just email back and forth. And, and a lot of my role is not so much you know informing people what to do, but just giving them the information that they need to be able to to do what they need to do at a point. So you know my sort of the the fundamental part of my job is gathering the information that we have, sorting it, organizing it, and then making it accessible to everyone else to have when they need it. So Gotcha. And you mentioned MailChimp earlier. You're mm-hmm. just working in Safari to manage all those. I, I've, I've had some issues uh, uh, both in their <laughs> app and in Safari, so I'm not sure what, what do you find best for that. Yeah, I, I have tried their app in the past, admittedly not for probably two years or so because I found their app to be pretty much worthless in terms of uh, creating email campaigns and getting them ready to go. They were It's it's pretty good for tracking your statistics afterward and seeing what happens there. But um, as far as generating emails, I don't think they ever intended their app really to be used for that from what I can tell. So I've always just... Yeah, it. for a while I had to build in Safari and there was some bug where I couldn't send in Safari. So I had to go to the app to see hit send on the, the campaign. But I think they've fixed that since that bug was happening. Oh, that is so weird. I don't think I ever ran into that. That would be more than a little frustrating, I'm sure, to <laughs> yeah. be unable to send an email from the web like that. But yeah, I, I just use the, the Safari interface for that, like with WordPress. And like with WordPress, um, that's another app that sometimes, you know, the button that I need to click disappears and I've got to figure out where on the page to scroll or to reach up and tap and scroll and and to get that to, to reappear. Sometimes I have to resort to changing the zoom level on the page. I have to go into the, like the, the UI menu, the little uh, two A's that are used for like the, like the font and style and everything there and, and zoom out to 85% or 75%. And then, then I can get the button to show up that I need to click and then I can click it and then, you know, go back to the, to the right size. Yeah. Aside from that, I haven't run into too many issues with, with MailChimp and in, in the browser. Okay. Not for a while anyway. Yeah. So the Shepherd's Crook podcast, what's the format of the show? What's it all about? Uh, mostly it's a way for us to, to get these, to get more of these kids stories out there. You know, we, with, with a growing number of orphans around the world and the growing number of orphans, orphans on our site that were trying to to share their stories we were looking for different ways to to get their stories out there you know we can we can send emails about kids we can post them on social media but you know if anyone has ever tried to find something on facebook after they've seen after they've seen it and then close the app and then open it up again good luck finding it um even if you go to the person's page it, it it can sometimes disappear and you know all too often you know emails get lost in the in the bunch and, and honestly we don't want to flood people's emails i mean in a sense it would be 
it wouldn't exactly be illegitimate to email everybody and say, look, we've got it. You know, these are the kids we've added to the website this week and do that. But that's a lot each week to try to put that together because there are kids constantly going on the site, coming off the site. So we wanted a different way to shed some light on that. So a couple of years ago, I started our podcast. It's basically just me. Most of the time, it's just me talking for eight or 10 minutes about three of the kids that we have on the on the website or you know sometimes it's five if there's a sibling group of three but i usually pick three entries on the site and just briefly share their stories i don't read the whole write up that's there there's usually more that people can can read if they follow the links in the show notes for the that episode to the kids pages and they, and they can go in and, and read more about them i don't want to i don't want it to be about you know reading wrote right off the website for the whole thing. That wouldn't be good. So I try to, to highlight things. I try to add some some commentary and some context. You know, if we've had kids that have gone through similar things or, or um, know families that have been in similar or had known families that have had kids that have been in similar situations, I'll sometimes mention that. For some of the kids, we are allowed to post videos of them online. So if the kid has a video particularly of them talking or if it's a young kid of them, like, you know, babbling and playing and stuff, I'll we'll... I will use um, YouTube DL in the A-Shell app and I'll download the audio for that that kid's video and I'll put that into the podcast as well so that you can actually hear most weeks. I try to do it so that there's at least one audio clip each week so that people can yeah. hear that and get a sense for, for what's going on there. And then, you know, keeping it to eight to 10 minutes, it's it's manageable. It's really short. It's easy to listen to that. It's not overwhelming. And even with that, you know, if I did three kids a week, every week for the whole year, that's a hundred and you know, hundred and fifty six kids out of almost eleven hundred right now. So it's it's not even close to the number of kids we have on the site, but it gets more of them out there. It gets more of them, you know, a chance to be talked about. I do occasional interviews on that as well. Um I've done a, a series of four or five, I think at this point, talking to representatives from the adoption agencies about the adoption process for particular countries. So we've talked about Colombia, we've talked about the Philippines, we've talked about Bulgaria and Serbia, just what it takes to adopt from these countries. So what are the steps you can expect? What's the time frame you can expect? And what kinds of situations are the kids living in typically? Are they in foster families? Are they in orphanages, what kinds of orphanages. So just that kind of thing. So that those are, are also sprinkled in throughout there in the podcast as well. Very cool. And what's kind of your recording setup? Is Ferrite your uh, go-to app for doing most of that? It is. Yeah. When it, when it's just me, it's, I just record right into Ferrite. I, I, I just, you know, sit there and I'll talk for a few minutes and, and record everything there. And I've got a project template set up in there so I can I'll go ahead and open that up and add the new audio to the project template and have that there. And, you know, especially with what they've added over the past couple of years to Ferrite with being able to insert chapters and chapter artwork and links for the chapters, I can, you know, they're all separated out. So if you have a podcast app that supports chapter artwork and you download one of our podcasts, I started doing this about a year ago, I want to say. If we're allowed to share the photo of that of the child that I'm talking about, their photo will be the chapter artwork for that section of the podcast. And and the link will take you directly to their page on our website for more information. So, but yeah, Ferret is the one-stop shop for that. I'm toying with an iPad-only setup for handling interviews, but I haven't had a chance to test it yet. So far, I've always gone back to the Mac to do that. Yeah, it can be a bit of a process to do that iPads. It's definitely yes. possible. <laughs> But especially with two iPads, it's, it's even easier. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's going to solve it for me, honestly. But I, I haven't had a chance to put that in 
put that to the test just yet. Yeah, and you actually have a way of hooking up an XLR microphone to a Lightning iPad. Is that right? I do. Yeah, I have uh, the microphone that I'm using is the Samson Q2U, which is effectively the same microphone as the it's the Audio Technica something something something. ATR twenty one hundred. Yeah, that sounds right. Yep. So it has a USB and an XLR connector on the bottom. Mine's the older version. So it has the USB mini on the bottom, yep. not USB-C, but I, I bought a USB-C mini to USB-C cable that goes into the iPad Pro, and then I bought an XLR to lightning cable to go into the the seventh generation iPad that I use as my secondary iPad. And so I, I think if I were to do an interview like I'm doing tonight, it seems to be working tonight, that um, I will be able to conduct the interview you know, online through Zoom or something, have Zoom record the audio from the other person's end, and then I can record my end locally here and put that together. So I hope to test that out sometime soon, but I haven't had a chance to put it through its paces just yet. Yeah, that's awesome. And I've not heard of that kind of cable. That's really cool that that even exists. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea either. I searched Amazon on, on a Lark one day and said, this seems like it should be possible. And sure enough, there there I think there were a couple of options um, so I think there there are at least one or two. And there's at least one out there, and there might be more than one yeah. option out there. So, do you edit podcasts with the pencil? Uh, yes, but I actually <laughs> I have kind of a weird um, podcasting setup. I use the external keyboard, the mouse, and the Apple Pencil all together when I'm editing the podcast. So I don't actually touch the screen at all most of the time. Okay. Um, I've tr- I've tried the whole like take the pencil and swipe down on the track to to cut it at points, and and I and could never quite get that motion to work properly for me. Yeah, I mostly use it to select. So I'll select a batch that I want to delete. Um, yeah, how I do it. So what I ended up doing was I I use the keyboard shortcuts. You know, I, I listen back to the podcast because it's it's primarily me talking. The most common thing that I do when editing is a ripple delete in Ferrite. Right, so you don't have to worry about lining up different uh, tracks. Right, exactly. If I'm doing a, an interview with somebody, that changes, but but I can you know. But I can still use the keyboard for that. So what I what I end up doing is is I listen to the podcast after I've done recording it, and then I, I select the beginning end endpoints of where I want to of what I want to cut. So I'll select one end. I'll, I'll use the the mouse to put the the line the the I don't know what you call it. I don't know if you call it a cursor in Ferrite or the the basically the track marker. I guess. Yep. Trackhead. Um, okay, the trackhead. So I'll put the trackhead where I want it to go. I'll select the track and I hit. I think it's Command T to split a track mm-hmm. um, in Ferrite. I know it if I were to do it, I, my fingers know it. Yeah. And then I go to the other end and I do that. And then I, I you have to be careful to, to tap out of that, that selection and then tap back in to select only the, 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 the section that you want to cut out. And then I've got the Apple Pencil set up to do a ripple delete on the double tap. So okay. I just double tap right there and then ripple delete and I just so I huh. I hold yeah. the pencil and the mouse in one hand and work with the keyboard and the other as I go through and I use the space bar to play and and everything so Interesting. um that's how I do that and I, I, every time I make a cut I always back up you know five or ten seconds or so and listen to make sure that the cut was pretty smooth going through and then right. I, I proceed from there so yeah so you mentioned earlier there are a couple things you still need a Mac for you're remoting into a Mac or what's what kind of tasks do you still need to do uh, behind a Macintosh. No, I'm not remoting into a Mac. I have a, a 2015 11-inch MacBook Air that sits in a drawer next to my desk okay. most of the time. So if I need a Mac, I'll get that out. And it's really just a couple of things. Like I get it out once a week or so and let it sync all of my iCloud Drive files over and everything. And then I run a backup through Carbon Copy Cloner so that I've got a local backup 
there. Anytime that I need to do a mail merge, like to create labels for something or generate letters that we want to print and send out to people, I have to resort to using Office on the, the Mac because there's just no way to do it on on the iPad. I should back up. I looked into this a couple years ago and, and there is a an app that I found that works with Google Docs and Google Sheets that purports to allow you to do mail merges from Sheets to, to Docs, but I've never explored that because I don't know that I could easily set up the format of the document in Google Docs the way that I would want it to be. Yeah. And the app costs $30 a year to run that, which is not bad. It, mm-hmm. That's not a bad price for that. But Microsoft has nonprofit pricing for their Office 365 and it's like $2 a month per user. So I spend less money on Office than I would on that single app to do mail merge there. And I've already got the template set up and everything. So I, I, I'm I, fine at this point getting my Mac out to do that. But that's something that I would like to see come to iOS at some point is the ability to say, I want these two apps to be able to talk to each other. Can you please just you know, create a secure tunnel between them and let them share information back and forth. But at this point, mail merge is really the big thing that I need a Mac for. And that's only, you know, maybe once a year. Okay. Yeah, it'd be nice, especially with Office apps, if they could figure that out between the same publisher, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Um, I don't think Apple is likely to bring that to numbers and pages. I think that ship has sailed. Yeah. Because I don't think that's even possible on the Mac versions of those apps at this point, if I remember correctly. I think it used to be, but I don't think it is now. Right. I, I believe you're right there. And, uh, the 11-inch MacBook Air. What a great piece of kit. I still have. That's my only Mac I own. It's from 20, 2011. Still running nice yeah. and, and fast these days. Before I got the big iPad Pro, that was my favorite computer. That was hands down my... And it barely edged up. My, my first Mac was a, a 12-inch iBook G4 um, yeah. that I got when I was in seminary. And that I loved for a long... I, had, I still have very fond memories of that. But the the 11-inch Air... So good. Was my, ...is my favorite. It's so good. It's so light, so powerful so fast just everything you want in a laptop yeah and uh it'd be amazing if they made a modern version that that same the same um uh physical design i guess fill in the bezel with screen and it could still maybe be a 13 inch screen i haven't measured it (laughs) yeah and it had a i think it had a different screen 16 by 9 i think right yeah i think you're right i think perfect for movies you know yeah and it let you have that nice full-size keyboard like it it was it was great it was it was such a good computer and it was it was you know, like you said, it was plenty powerful enough for what it needed to do. And it was it was just the right set of, of balances and trade-offs for a computer, especially of that era. Yeah. So anything else you want to touch on? Any requests to Apple for iPadOS or things you missed that you'd like to touch on? Yeah, I, I do have some things I wish they would they would work on. And I've heard a lot of people talking about, you know, wanting to wanting Apple to redesign the multitasking features and everything like that. And I actually think that the multitasking features are mostly fine. I, I don't really have an issue with that. My nitpicks are, are kind of smaller. I'm with every other podcaster and wanting more control over audio, being able to, you know, chat in one app and record in, in another app, and then even just have fine grained controls over, you know, which microphone input to use whether you're using the the you know good microphone that's hooked up to your iPad or the iPad's micro internal microphone you should be able to select that yourself i would love to be able to make an actual legitimate backup of my iPad to an external drive the way that i can on the mac i would love it to pull in my photos and and everything you know as these things you know i, I know that the iPad was kind of conceived of as a uh, sort of a cloud client device yeah. in some ways but as the storage is getting bigger you know i've got 256 gigs on the the big iPad Pro and you know I know that they go up to 
it's it's one terabyte, not two terabytes. Yeah, it's right? one. Yep. Okay. I mean, that's plenty of storage space. You should be able to download everything there that you need and then make an actual backup of that. And That'd be great. Yeah. Even if they uh, have just Time Machine as an option. Yeah. Yeah. Just give me something. Give me something to know that I can make an an actual backup of my of my iPad here. I would Time love- Machine also enables you to restore selectively versus just restore the whole device, which is what iCloud Backup provides. Yeah, that's not great. Thankfully, that doesn't... I don't I don't remember the last time that I had to restore from a backup because of an issue, but you're right. That is, if you have to go back in time, that's the only option you have, and that's not a great option. I would love... Along those same lines with a, a backup, I would love to be able to tell the system that I want an app like Text Expander to work in every text field across the system. I, you know, I, I wish they would set up a setting like you have on the Mac where you go into the security settings and you can say, I want to allow full disk access to, to these apps. You have to do mm-hmm. it on the Mac now to get even something like Terminal to work. You have to do that. And I wish on the iPad I could say, look, I really want Text Expander. I trust them. You know, I'm explicitly giving them permission to to monitor my keyboard input and expand text there. I'm, you know, I trust... Yeah, you know, time machine backup utility or whatever in sort of my dream scenario, carbon copy cloner would make an iPad app that would back up your iPad and say, I trust carbon copy cloner to have full access to my iPad's internal drive to make a copy of. I, I wish we had that kind of control on the iPad. I would love the option to have a horizontal split screen, not just a vertical split screen. Yes. Um, specifically for spreadsheets and even for some like trying to view two web pages at the same time if they're if they're wider web pages. I would love to be able to have that option. I would be fine with the default sticking to vertical, but I think we should have the option of, you know, with some gesture or drag combination getting that to go vertical. I desperately want the tall iPhone size class to be able to split into two. So you have two like little widget sized apps next to your main iPad app. To take one side and, and split it up in in two pieces. Yeah. There. Exactly. Yeah, it's this yeah. very tall, narrow thing which is great, but sometimes you just you want that split in half, especially if you're working in vertical uh, mode on your <laughs> iPad. Uh, it's kind of bonkers. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that would be great. I would love to see the ability for um, shortcuts to automatically save files to a designated folder somewhere in iCloud Drive. Now that shortcuts is part of the actual OS, mm-hmm. I don't think we should be limited just to the shortcuts folder for that. That would I would really love to be able to say. Yeah, yeah it's very uh, weird to me that that's still a thing. That almost feels like an oversight. Like they just didn't quite get to that one at this point, but I would love to see that. For split screen, I would love, love for them to show me which app has the keyboard at any given moment so that I know <laughs> when I'm typing where the text is going. It's a fun uh, game. It could, it's You can bet, you know, uh, casino money. Uh, it could be a new casino game, which, which <laughs> app has the, the input. <laughs> I guess I guess fun is one word for it. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's a bit of a headache, yeah. And then my my last nitpick that I thought of is I would like to be able to use the Apple Pencil to control the entire interface, including the home indicator and the you know multitasking and split screen handles for for that. It, it seems I get why they don't do it because if I'm drawing and I accidentally go home, that could be annoying. But they should be a nice little option. Yeah, I I there are times that I wish I could just grab that and you know it, it's it's such a first world problem thing. I've got the pencil in my hand. How do you my, use the pencil? Um, I I do some handwritten notes occasionally. Specifically, if we're doing you know if I'm doing like a, a Bible study at our church or something like that, I've, I'll often use Good Notes and take notes there. And if I'm using the iPad, 
in my in my lap and not at my desk. I tend to use the Apple Pencil as the main interface for it instead of my finger because yeah. it's more precise because I can I can select what I'm looking for. Although as cool as Scribble is, it is really frustrating sometimes if I go to tap a button and it <laughs> thinks that I've tapped into the search field yeah, in an app totally. and then I have to tap back out of it. And then, uh, yeah, anything else we didn't touch on that you want to chat about before we wrap it up? Just one of the things that I've found with the iPad over the years is that I think it can actually, it's increasingly possible to use it as your only computer and only more so as time goes on. I know that there's, I think there will always be conversations about, you know, can an iPad be a real computer? And the answer for a long time has been yes. And now it depends less and less on what you do. Um, It makes you rethink some of the things that you, you know, would makes it makes you rethink the way you would do things because it's different than a desktop operating system. Of course it's different. It's a touch-based interface and, and all that, but they've it's come a long way. But in some ways, I think it can actually be a little bit more cost-effective in the long run because iPads run forever. They'll run for years and years and years with plenty of, of processing power overhead. And I am a I'm a big believer in paying for the apps that you use and mm-hmm. wanting to make sure that you support developers because it's not at all fair or reasonable to expect that paying you know, one ninety nine for an app gets you ten years worth of updates. That's right. not how this works. But but apps by and large, I think large somewhat because of what Apple has done to drive the prices down and somewhat because of just the scale of the iPad and, and the iPhone, apps tend to be less expensive on iOS. So it's a little bit easier to try something and to yeah. get you know, you can get a really good, you know, you know, task management app for twenty dollars instead of fifty or, you know, you can and you know web services still cost what they're going to cost because they're on the web but the the native apps that i think actually tend to work better they're faster because their storage is local they're syncing up to the cloud not reading their data from the cloud when you open them um that's one of the reasons i've stuck with bear for example over evernote is that bear by being a local app that syncs over cloudkit is just lightning fast yeah bruce free this really high end audio noise removal tool i think it's like 20 bucks or 10 bucks on the ipad but it's the yeah. same app same exact app on the mac is like 100 or 200 dollars just because it's a <sighs> different ecosystem same functionality all that i believe it and i've i've never used logic or um final cut pro but you know LumaFusion is like 20 or 30 dollars and ferrite yep. i think all in to unlock everything is 20 bucks and from what i can gather from people who have used both ferrite and logic or LumaFusion and Final Cut Pro, there isn't much of a difference. I mean, there's certainly not hundreds of dollars of difference, you know, right. $200 for Logic and 300 for Final Cut Pro. There, The gap isn't that big from what I and, can tell. Yeah. And as many people heard in the last episode of this podcast, the school that I was talking with the this instructor, they're using iPad 2s that were released in 2011 up until last year. So that's a good uh, nine years of use, 2011 Man. to 2020. So... They can get that a fair crazy. amount of use. And uh, yeah, even I'd say those processors were probably not doing so hot, but for, you know, elementary school kids did just fine. But I, I'm yeah. I'm just yeah. so curious about this current, you know, generation of these. I think we're at eighth generation iPads and these iPad Pros that they're just so fast that I'm just so curious mm-hmm. if you didn't have FOMO of not having the newest, latest, best. These things, I think, could last a pretty long time, like a, um, maybe a decade. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. I, I I plan to use this iPad Pro until it's not up. It, until it doesn't support OS the current updates. version of iPad yeah. OS. Because, I mean, I, I've had it for two and a half years. The battery still is fine. It it really runs all day. I, I still get almost ten hours of use out of it every day. 
And I don't think I've ever had an app actually push this thing as much as it does. And I've done some video work, you know, for our church last year when everybody went into lockdown. I do, you know, I do all the podcast editing here and it, it just chews through that stuff like it's nothing. And yeah. I, I, I think, I, I wonder if we're going to see another generation of iPad and iOS apps come up in the next couple of years because the processors now are just so much more powerful. Like, I mean... Yeah, even these low-end chips, you got the A14 there, that's just a beast. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it laughs at at stuff like, you know, email and web browsing and and stuff like that. Like, it it just, you're you're more bogged down by the speed of your internet connection most of the time than you are by the speed of the processor. Yeah, we upgraded one of our Intel Macs here. Uh, I'm that um, another family member uses and they've complained about internet speeds for the longest time and sure enough it was a it's just the intel chip versus the uh the m1 and it was like <laughs> oh it was actually just the the chip in there that, just the processor yeah that's my i've heard nothing but good things about the m1 max so yeah they're they're impressive the the mac i think has finally surpassed the ipad as far as the battery with those m1 max it's just it's it's amazing what that battery can do in those things <laughs> i know i it for a moment, it made me wish that I still use the Mac long term and that we had room in the budget for it and everything. But I just I I don't think that I could go back. I don't, there are there are certainly things that I could do on the Mac that I, yeah. I can't do on, on the iPad. There are apps there that just don't exist on the iPad. But the same is true the other way around. Like I don't think there's any way that I could put together a shortcut that you know searches my contacts in a particular group for a particular company that these people are with and constructs the, you know, asks me for input in that. There probably is a way to do that, but it would probably involve far more Apple script and stuff than I would even begin to know what to do with. And I can do all that in shortcuts. And it's yeah. just, I, I, I find the, the on-device automation and stuff just vastly superior and more accessible for me than, than what I was doing on the Mac. And I was dabbling in some Apple scripts and stuff, but it was mostly find something similar that somebody else had done and posted online and try to modify it without breaking the whole thing so um mm-hmm. not yeah. quite as intuitive as, as shortcuts yeah they're way different experiences and uh yeah i'm yeah happy with the, a screen i can yank off the keyboard and just grab as yeah. a tablet and yeah there's so yeah. many advantages to ipad os uh, and uh i'm sure max will get sellier one day but that for now is still one of the huge things as you mentioned earlier yeah yeah and it also makes my my phone more usable. Um, it makes the iPhone, for me at least, worth having more because yeah, share pretty much everything I do on the right. iPad. Yeah, exactly. Most apps have settings that share across devices. Your shortcuts show up everywhere. I mean, it's a smaller screen and a different, you know, inner like user interface because of the the size and and everything, and no Apple Pencil and no pointer. But I mean, you you it, it, for me, it makes the 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 iPhone much more. Um, you know, and a much more powerful, much more usable um, because of the iPad. Yeah. Well, um, with that, where can people find the Shepherd's Crook Orphan Ministry and the work you do there? You can find us at tseorphans.org. Um, that's the, the place to go to get links to all of our social media. We're TSC Orphans on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. For the podcast, you can go to podcast.tseorphans.org. Uh, to see everything there. And then um, I've got a personal blog, uh, nonprofitworkflows.com, that gets updated maybe once a year or so. I, <laughs> I'm hoping to be able to, to post there a little bit more often. That's basically just a way for me to put in some things that, you know, the idea there is for me to post about things that um, have come up in the course of working for a nonprofit, some of the specific workflows that I've that I've concocted to uh, you know, to complete certain tasks and things like that. So it's not not unique to nonprofits, but it, it, it's their workflows that have come out of 
working for a nonprofit. Well, that's great. And thank you so much for your time uh, chatting. This has been great learning more about what you do and discovering some cool apps like this uh, awesome email search tool that I'm going to have to recommend to some people that have been asking for this kind of tool. Well, thank you for having me, Tim. I appreciate that and glad that I could help with, you know, at least a little bit of an app recommendation there. So always happy to do that. Well, that was my interview with Greg. Thanks again to Greg for his time recording this episode. You can find the extensive show notes for this episode over at iPadPros.net. Greg was kind enough to supply some notes that include many topics we didn't actually have time to cover. All of that is available at iPadPros.net. And my thanks once again to Spark by Riedel for sponsoring this episode. Learn more at SparkMailApp.com. And finally, my thanks to you for tuning in to this episode. I appreciate you spending your time with me. And I'll talk to everyone again real soon.